one of the first programs I did in Nepal, I was just organizing the logistics with with local collaborators, and you know, just you know, where we stay, where where do we go for this meeting, and the trip where we designed it was the first meeting and they're like oh look most of the of our colleagues that go there just walk like you know right if they're going to go to the meeting they just walk and Australian students aren't used to doing you know 10 kilometer walks to go to a meeting so at the end of this trip which hiking was not a part of it was not on the agenda at all I reckon they did a hundred kilometers of hikes in within a week or something just from that's the way Nepalese people you know get around so much so much hiking and to their students absolute credit they they took it all on the chin and just just noted that they spent a lot of time walking yeah today's guest is julian o'shea who's a lecturer at monash university but more than that julian is one of the most interesting people i think in international education julian I think you must be one of the only people in Australian international education that has a Guinness World Record. Yeah, I've got a couple actually up my up my sleeves in my time. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> Tell us more. So, look, I'm really interested in sustainability and travel, but also when I was a kid, I read the Guinness Book of Records. And the difference is that most people like, you know, get over it about age 10, whereas, you know, I kind of kept kept the dream alive. I just always thought it'd be something fun to do, to, to set one. So the first record I ever set was combining these things I like, sustainability plus travel. So I set the record for the longest distance traveled on train in 24 hours oh, wow. to China to do that one. Tell us more. How far did you go? So, yeah. You know, I'm really interested in, in traveling overland and Japan famously has the Shinkansen, the massive fast train network. But I think China is a fascinating story where in the year 2006, they had zero kilometers of fast rail and they've now got more than the rest of the world combined. So just kind of watching this phenomenon happen, I'm like, wait up. Well, look, if this record was previously set in Japan, maybe you could go to China to, to beat it. And that's exactly what I did. I, I booked in a, in a route that would travel across the country, you know, with an average speed of more than 200 kilometers per, per hour over the entire day. And yeah, went and, went and set a world record. You must have been relatively nervous that no train was going to run behind. <laughs> Imagine it was... Oh, absolutely. You do, you're doing the logistics. You don't have a lot of time between them. And, you know, it's a lot of, lot of effort to go and plan and, and do. But fortunately, not only are they fast, they were certainly on time. So the, 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 the kind of close changeovers, which I was a bit nervous about, were totally fine. Good call doing this in China and not in France, I reckon. <laughs> you think it would be a bit, a bit harder? <laughs> <laughs> it would be harder. Not just for the distance... And so, so you said you have multiple. What else do you have world records in? So a couple of years ago, back in 2019, there was a total solar eclipse in Chile. And it's a you know, rare phenomenon, happens on Earth probably every two years or so. Like, it's a pretty, pretty rare event. You know, eclipse chasing is a bit of a minor hobby of mine. I saw the previous ones that are in Australia. So a friend and I went, went across to, to watch it. And it was in the Atacama Desert, which is this incredibly dry part of Chile. Very, very, very high altitude. All of the volcanoes up there. So we went to observe it. But we thought, while we're there in this really unique part of the part of the Earth, one of the driest parts of the planet, really high altitude, we thought we'd set a world record. So we dug through the book and saw what the records were for high altitude stuff. So my friend Sam and I, we, we set two records while we were there. In advance, we worked with a colleague and designed a 3D printer that could work off the grid. So you didn't need power, it could do it all by batteries. 
So we dragged this 3D printer up a volcano and printed a little picture of the sun to celebrate the eclipse. So highest altitude 3D printing on Earth. And we also, to a different volcano, even higher, about 5,700 meters, so above Everest Space Camp, set the record for high altitude skateboarding. Hmm. That's very cool. <laughs> yeah, cool and, cool, and, cool and pointless is kind of the vibe we're going for. <laughs> and have you got any more plans? Is there another one in the, in the works? Not immediately. I was working with some students on, on one for... We, we built a solar-powered bike. And we could, if we, if we you know, really tweaked it a lot, try to make it the world's fastest. But there's a lot of work to be done with that. We'll see if we've got the time and energy. What's your background, mate? Like for you to have an aptitude to build 3D printers and solar-powered bikes? Yeah, I did my undergrad degree in electronics engineering, Adelaide Uni back in the day. And I recently finished, still waiting examination actually, a PhD in sustainable transport in industrial design. And so what's the segue there into, into international ed? So look, I think for me, a lot of it has been around kind of education at the, at the core. Like I really enjoyed my uni days. I actually loved it. I loved being a student. And weirdly, the part I think I enjoyed least was the, was the content, you know, the lectures, the shoots. It was the everything else around it that I really loved. The, the student clubs, the, the working on projects that you like, being in a place of interesting people. So I kind of just by random chance came across this field that looked at education. Like what, what if we made, you know, the educational content focused on social impact, on volunteering, on student-led initiatives. And that was the bit that made me go, oh my goodness, like imagine if the if the kind of core coursework was as fun as the ancillary stuff. And that really started on, on my journey into, into being an engineer, but also being an educator. And so that led you, I mean, where I first came across you was the work you were doing with Unbound, doing pretty cool programs off into the Asia-Pac. Can you tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so like my explicit work in this space started a bit before that. I, being an engineer, really interested in, in social impact and interesting projects, I joined a not-for-profit called Engineers Without Borders and was their education and research director. So in that job, my job was to work with universities to, to develop curriculum programs, basically getting, getting technical students working on problems that really matter, you know, clean water, access to toilets, off-grid electricity. So I designed a lot of projects and programs around that. And part of it, a realization was pretty quickly, it's hard to design for communities that you're not in. It's hard to design for communities that you're not a part of. So having students directly connect, and researchers to be fair, and professionals, directly connect with those communities was essential. So I started an initiative that would actually take students on, on study tours and collaborative projects overseas. And that really kind of kicked off like explicitly doing this type of work. It's, it is such a hard area, isn't it, Moraine? Like program and you, you when we, we ran an agency called aim overseas a few years ago yeah and program design is i think both super exciting and also very challenging at times trying to make it all come together making sure that the content is right that you've got the right people on the ground to deliver what you're trying to achieve and making sure that you've got the right number of students to make it all come together and you've got enough and not too many either so that they've got the best experience possible how did you manage all those aspects look it, it takes a lot of effort and time to really get right and you realize very quickly the small things really, really, really matter, like hugely so, that, that what meals you choose kind of makes a difference, you know, that you're in this country. So having the ability to experience the country 
not necessarily just formally part of the program, but just in everything that you do, I think matters a lot. There's nothing you know more uncomfortable than being in hot human environments, not being fed and just being like, oh, no one's having fun. So look, I've made many, many, many of the mistakes. I won't say all of them, because I'm sure I've got more to make, but you certainly over time get better. Like the programs, you do something that just is so much better than you thought and you overemphasize that and some things that just don't quite work. Do you have a favorite stuff up? <laughs> Like if I remember, you're just like, oh my God. I'm... But something that something that you learned from, right? So not not yeah. disaster story. But... Oh yeah, no, no, many, I've got many. One of the first programs I did in Nepal, I was just organizing the logistics with with local collaborators. And, you know, just, you know, where we stay, where, where do we go for this meeting? And the trip where we designed it was the first meeting. And they're like, oh, look, most of, the, of our colleagues that go there just walk. Like, you know, right, if they're going to go to the meeting, they just walk. And... Australian students aren't used to doing, you know, 10 kilometer walks to go to a meeting. So at the end of this trip, which hiking was not a part of, it was not on the agenda at all. I reckon they did a, a hundred kilometers of hikes in within a week or something, just from that's the way Nepalese people, you know, get around. It's so much, so much hiking. And to their students, absolute credit. They they took it all on the chin and just just noted that they spent a lot of time walking. Yep. Actually, that's a great example because I was going to ask you, how did you go about managing students' expectations? That one, to be fair, the students just very much did it themselves. You know, like we were gently, like kind of apologetic, but kind of, kind of not in the sense that this is like, you know, part of it. Of course, we would have made accommodations if people needed it. But yeah, basically the thing, we, 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 we just kind of made it clear you guys are intrepid thank you so much for, for being so you know strong and participating in this for future versions we're going to probably get a bus here <laughs> <laughs> so they got the best experience did, out of their mobile they, they, they did oh they went back and just truly did have a wonderful time so yeah some of these things and, and things can be both true in both directions where it can be totally fine in the moment and you look back and like, yeah, probably shouldn't do that or the opposite can be true we like oh, that was a bit unpleasant but was a really great experience yeah i was wondering to what extent you know that's so resilience building. I know resilience is a word that kind of gets thrown around, but welcome to the real world, right? Like when you're out doing a project for work and suddenly it's not as expected, you just have to adapt and get on with it. So I don't know. It's and I found experience. that really interesting and challenging with program design. For example, another one in the same context is that Nepalese people eat the same food a lot. Like pretty much every meal is some version of vegetal bhat, vegetables plus dal, lentils, plus rice. And that's just totally normal to eat the same food all the time. But Australian tastes are not like that. You know, we're used to kind of diversity of food. So there's a question as a program designer, do you have the authentic Nepalese experience, which literally is the same meal again, again, and again, and again, and again, and again, or do you, you know, tweak it and still have some, you know, Nepalese flavors in the mix, but make it more diverse, you know, and, and it's, it's a trade-off. And, and, you know, we, we certainly try to find that balance. When we're with villagers, we'll be more likely to kind of do it traditional style. And when we're back in Kathmandu, be a little bit, you know, go, go on, go, go grab a pizza. That's totally fine. Typically, you take students for how long? Most of the programs I've coordinated have been short-term, so around the two to three weeks lengths, and do it as a kind of inclusive, like a, a, a program together. Yeah, like so facilitated by our team. And, and what do you find is the optimal number of students to take on the program then? Or what's been too few or too many? Yeah, I like, I like, I like, I like between 12 and 22, that kind of range. <laughs> now, sorry, you go. No, no, you go. I, I, I agree with that range. I think when, when you don't have, when you've got less participants, it can get a little bit tricky in terms of 
interactions and group dynamics. And I think when you've got too many, you lose the core atmosphere. It gets harder for everyone to make the most out of their experience. Uh, so yeah, that's probably an ideal kind of ratio, ratio like range. Good range. You're now on the other side of the fence, being a, a, an academic inside a faculty. A lot of international educators who might listen to this or who might watch this might be part of a central unit and might not have any sort of direct access or may not have any real understanding of what it's like to be out in the faculty. What, what's the big difference for you, Julian? Yeah, I've always been a bit of an unusual place where I've been like a university professional staff member. That, that, that's a role I've done recently. I was at the University of Melbourne leading a sustainability leadership program. I've been an academic before in a kind of sessional role. I've been an industry partner, as I said, through groups like Engineers Without Borders, working with academics. To be honest, I, I because I've worked in all those places, I don't see them as necessarily as different as other people do. You know, I because I, I, I'm often that same person in wearing different hats. I think key is that, you know, recognising that all of these roles are important and they often need to, you know, stick together to make something work and just being really conscious about what other collaborators are interested in. You know, our partners in countries overseas have different kind of goals and aspirations than what academics do, who are really interested in, you know, academic rigour and, and, you know, kind of quality and those types of things. And, you know, of course, when you're running a program, you need things to work, you need logistics, you need you need it all to go smoothly, safely and ethically. I think that's so true. I think so much in work, we see things from our perspective and I'm trying to get my work done. Therefore, I'm going to send out half a dozen emails to all these different people asking them for stuff. There's very much like a, a I want what you can give me rather than flipping that around and always looking at what I can give you, like how I'm supporting you in your role. So just flipping that mindset over can sometimes be really, really helpful. From what you're saying about wearing different hats and having had experience first managing programs and now seeing it from an academic perspective, do you feel that over the last few years things have changed or not with COVID and different economic environment in terms of students being willing to go overseas or being able to afford it? Is it still the same? Has it changed a lot? Yeah, look, it, it's obviously, you know, kind of one of the f fields that was a full stop, of which there were others as well. A lot of my work was in kind of countries that, you know, don't have a strong healthcare system as others. So it's something we were kind of conscious of. Yeah, look, I think it has changed a lot. I even think students have changed a bit. You know, I really feel for the students that are at university now or did their university in the last few years. Because as I said, I loved uni and a big part of it was the friends and the collaboration and the events and the pub crawls and all of these kind of activities that I really, really enjoyed. So I even think the student cohorts are different in the sense that often when I would run programs, there'd be people with just different, like much more varied experience. Some would have traveled a lot, some would have done gap years, some would be a little bit older, some would have done, you know, school trips. Whereas now it's far less likely that people have traveled significantly because for the last three years, we've, a lot of us have kind of been, been, been at home. So I actually think that's been one of the biggest difference that the, the cohort itself is a bit you know, less experienced in some of these things. So even when I catch up with students here in Melbourne, I did a thing where we, you know, went and got kind of a pop-up food and, you know, a lot of people just hadn't tried it because, you know, I also wasn't exploring local tastes for, you know, being fairly locked down in Melbourne for two years. You just don't have a chance to go out and, and do things. And that's much more impactful if that was during your formative, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old years. You got into a project during the pandemic, which... I mean, I, th I think it's just, a, once again, a credit to, to the diversity of things that you're interested in. But tell me about your YouTube project. 
Yeah, so not being able to travel meant that I couldn't kind of run overseas education programs. So, but I really wanted to, you know, continue to to make it make an impact in that world. So I basically did. Well, hey, look, I've got time now to finally learn what video editing is about. I might start making educational video. Now, this is something I've wanted to do for years, in the sense of not me doing it, but having someone join me on these trips overseas to tell these stories because there are just incredible innovators overseas. And it just felt a little bit criminal to me that like me and 14 other people were learning from this incredible wisdom, but it was only 14 people. So I always liked the idea of having a videographer join to capture some of these stories. And I just could never find any. I just didn't know people in the space. And I was willing to fly them to, to you know, Thailand or Fiji or Nepal. and just couldn't find anyone that was able and wanted to, to do it. So I just kind of finally thought, well, maybe I can learn how to do it. So started telling local stories. So my first video outside the house was of a bridge that keeps getting hit in Melbourne. And when I went there to learn, why do, bridge, why do trucks keep hitting this bridge? A truck hit the bridge. So my, <laughs> my channel certainly kind of took off on the back of that. And I've been, yeah, making YouTube, TikTok and Instagram videos about design, about cities ever since. I'm going to drop in the link to, in fact, maybe I'll just pinch some of the footage from that clip because it's it's utterly brilliant. What I love about the way that you, you're using YouTube and it is the way you t- tell stories there. What are some of the key things you look for? So if we're talking about international educators, content, video, what are the key elements that people should think about when they're trying to tell a story in their content? Yeah, I think an important bit is like, what is the hook and through line? People often make the mistake that videos should talk about everything. You know, if you're going to make a video about an overseas trip, you might cover the location and the food and the agenda and the people and the requirements and this. Whereas finding a single bit to kind of focus on, you can expand from that, but is, is really key. So, you know, that video, for example, the hook was, why do trucks keep hitting this bridge? Rather than talking about, you know, city design and and safety and transport, like in a broad sense, choose something specific. Specifics are always the way to go. And the great thing about specifics is that even if you know the topic, even if you genuinely know about whatever it is the thing you're talking about, they don't know about this one version of it. So for example, if you're an expert on bike lanes of the world and I make a video about the bike lane, you know, up on this one street in St Kilda, then People won't have seen that bike lane. So experts can still learn stuff from it because they don't know the specifics and new people can understand it better because you're giving them specifics. So yeah, a really, really punchy hook is how you make stuff work in social media. Grab attention early, leave a bit of curiosity gap so people have to kind of follow along and then yeah, try to make it short, sharp and good. I was going to ask, with, with the rise of AI recently, do you do anything differently at the moment or has it affected how you work? It hasn't really. I've dabbled a little bit in, yo, AI, give me some, give me some good ideas. Write a script for me. It's, nothing's good. I haven't seen anything that's been useful for, for my stuff. And in fact, my point of difference, I would say, is that I talk about topics that no one's spoken about before. And because AI is just hoovering up the internet, but by definition, if it's a topic that hasn't been covered before, it's not strong. If I wanted to do something more generally, like, you know, Seven Wonders of the World, I'm sure it'd be great. I'm sure it'd be fine. But my point of difference is telling you about a thing you may have seen or experienced, but don't understand why. Like, what's the story behind that thing? So we'll see. I may get put out of a job one day, but it hasn't been so useful It's a little way away, isn't it? I, I think I agree with you. I think if you're a content creator, you're probably safe right now. Good content creators are probably safe for the foreseeable future. All it's doing is like, you know, the good content creators all the way up here, the base is down there, and it's just helping raise the level of, you know, that 
terrible content that's all over internet, work, life in general. You know, just kind of raising that low base up to a higher base. But I think the standout content creators are still gonna be up there for a little while yet. If, if you were trying to, so try, and be, try and be like really specific. If you were trying to take, for example, a student testimonial, a student story, and turn that into a compelling piece of social media content for international education, whether it's for marketing, persuasion, what have you, how would you attack that project? Yes, I'd probably, again, choose a single aspect of it. So, for example, you know, maybe just get them to focus on the food. So a video that just said, I went to Thailand for two weeks and this is everything I ate. That's really exciting. Like, what, did that, what, what, what is for breakfast? What is for dinner? What is for lunch? You've got a through line. You've got a, oh, that looks good. Oh, no, maybe not. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, wow. You know, so just a single piece of it that, that whoever's making it is genuinely interested in, I think could be really interesting. So yeah, niche it down or find, you know, a piece of it. Like this was the most exciting thing that I did in, in, in country rather than make everything surface level. Otherwise they all sound the same. I'll be honest, like there's a lot that, you know, student X said, oh, the people were so great. And, you know, it was so lovely to be hosted by all of our, our guests. And I learned a lot. It's going to help my career. That could be any student to any country, you know, whereas I think the you know, diving really deep into the bits that make a program or an experience or a place unique is, is how I do that. That's, that's very true. I feel that as we were just saying about AI, it's at the moment, it's very vanilla. And that, that's a problem with a lot of content that we see from international education, you know, the way we're trying to promote Australia or promote a particular university or tell a story about a student. It's just kind of like, yeah, it's just kind of vanilla. Nothing wrong with vanilla. Like, sometimes you feel like vanilla. But but something that just kind of gives it a little bit of spice and picks it up is, is where some of the goal is, I reckon. Yeah, look, one of my complaints about society on the whole is that we've, we've gone overwhelmingly for nice instead of interesting. You know, there are thousands of hotel rooms in Melbourne and I'm sure they're all great, fine, they do the job, but very few are interesting. Like, would you would you tell someone about it? Even if they're really nice, they're just, it's a good bed and a hot shower and a big bath and a nice wall and a piece of art, but nothing is noteworthy about it, nothing. And that is so true of like architectural trends. You know, Scandinavian chic is nice, it's really nice. There's timber and it's light and it's white and it's dark and it's white walls and it's minimalist. It's really nice, but it's not that interesting. You know, like, I, so I think that in a world where things are actually pretty functionally good, standing out is, is the way to go. You know, be, be a bit weird, be a bit quirky, you know, show some character, fill your house with knickknacks, you know, wear purple. It's, it's fine. It's going to be all right. Yeah, I wonder if that's a result of partly of the internet that because there can be a mouthpiece for anyone and everyone and it can lend itself to some anonymity and vitriol, then it's made people maybe more afraid of being themselves and I don't know, displaying personality and being judged for it and whether that contributes to a certain level of blandness. <laughs> well, I think like a lot of it is that things have tried to appeal for everyone. You know, like if you're making a product, you want it to appeal to as many people as possible. I made a video the other day about how cars aren't colorful anymore. I think we all remember our cars as, you know, kids 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, there were red cars, there were green cars, there were blue cars, there were pink cars, and there were yellow cars. And today there are not. The cars are overwhelmingly black, white, silver, gray, black, white, silver, gray. And, you know, yes, more people might be okay with a white car, but like, you know, anyone who loves a yellow car now isn't being served. And I think the internet's a good example where, 
you know, TV used to be broadcast, like broad was part of it. It had to appeal, had to put off as few people as possible. Whereas these days we've now got infinite choice that it's better to be loved by a small group of people than tolerated by many because they can just click off and go find something else. So weirdly, I think the smartest strategy these days is be interesting and engaging and niche. What I love about your story, Julian, is like you've really followed your interests through so many different things. You know, out of uni, engineers without borders, into international education, now you're off lecturing. You've got this through line, which is the humanitarian engineering. You've got this, this awesome diversity of things. So clearly you're following your interests. What advice would you have for, let's say an early to mid-stage interna international educator about their career and how they might approach it so it can be as interesting as possible? Yeah, look, I think that it's a bit of a bit of a life hack, actually, is to do the thing that you're most excited about and interested in, because it just doesn't feel like work so much. You know, if you genuinely find a new topic that you love and you're willing to watch every YouTube video about it, read every book, you know, nerd out about it, then it just doesn't feel like work. So you can actually do a lot without it, like, costing a lot of, like, kind of energy and effort because it, you know, brings you a lot of joy. So that's kind of been my strategy. Do the next most interesting and exciting thing. The other thing is I think there's space for new ideas. So one of the international education projects that I started was called STAMP, right? Study Tour for Academics and Mobility Professionals. And I, and I ran it and set it up. And I don't know whether P standard for professionals or practitioners to this day. One of the two. But STAMP was my idea that just said, hey, look, we're you know, going to conferences in Melbourne about study tours, of which many people in this room have never been on one. And that just felt weird to me. And I also thought, wow, these conferences are really expensive. I could spend a week in Vietnam for this. And that was the logical points I put together. And it, there was no pushback, you know, like you can just make stuff. You, you just can do things that, that, you know, you find the right people, you make some connections. And that was one of the real professional highlights is running these study tours, but for peers. So we went to Vietnam, we went to Fiji, we went to India, and they're really engaging experiences. And it's the type of thing that, you know, no one's job it wasn't anyone's job, it wasn't even my job to make this thing, but you just can, you can just do stuff. You know, it wasn't core business for me. Didn't certainly didn't make any money out of it. It just was a project I thought was fun to do with interesting people. And we did it and it was fun. And yeah, so I just think that getting excited about a project, finding good people to work on it with, and you'll, you'll be fine. How do you, how do you get that started? I mean, you've got this idea for something. What's next? Like, let's say there's somebody watching this, listening this, listening to this, who's like, oh, I've got this idea of something that I can do that makes, will make international education better. What do they do? You find one other person to join your team, like a person that you know that is likely to say yes, either to the idea or to you because they know and like you. And the reason why that's important is it immediately changes it from I have an idea to we have an idea. So that just makes it a bit less, I don't know, scary personally. But there's often no actual barriers to doing these things, you know? Like if, if you, particularly if you can do it within your existing work, if you're not asking for anything additional and you're the person doing it, there's often no reason to say no, but more regularly, there's no one to say no to. Like, so, so to do it, you just say that it exists and ask people to, to get involved. Like it's kind of, kind of like that, kind of that simple. Yeah, so the steps I would do is find a little team and then kind of work backwards, you know? For this to exist, what needs to happen? And I often, when I start new ideas, not do it in a big scary way, do it in the smallest kind of possible way. Like launching a YouTube channel sounds scary, but you know, uploading one video, is not that hard. And if it doesn't go anywhere, that's fine. But if it does, then yeah, 
There's a lot of potential. I love that advice, don't you, Marine? Doesn't that feel familiar? It does. I agree with the we as well, because I think then once you get started on a project, even if at some point one of the two gets a little bit discouraged or is feeling a bit less energetic, then the other person is there to kind of pick up the enthusiasm and say, hey, let's get going. And then there's this kind of bouncing back and forth from one to the other. And I think that's quite helpful in terms of keeping things going. Yeah. I agree. And I agree that it's better to try to, to take little steps because it can be quite daunting when you look at a whole project. So working back can be a good way. I guess the, the tricky bit sometimes in universities can be dealing with some of the more bureaucratic aspects in terms of getting maybe authorization or budgets. And that's the thing. If you can do a project that doesn't need authorization or budgets, then it just is a lot easier. So like you can, there, there are versions of things that do need that. And there are versions of things which don't. So you know, yeah, organizing a conference because you need authorizations and budgets and time and leave is harder, but doing the Zoom version catch up that people can do in their lunch break isn't. So maybe start with that version, get a bit of momentum and then dial it up to one that, that does need more, more effort. more resources. Momentum is everything, isn't it? That's, that is so true. I remember the, one of the first things that I kind of did outside of my day-to-day job in international ed was create a national forum on outbound mobility. So this thing was, ended up being a, a huge big deal, but I just sort of thought, oh, that we kind of need to do this. We need to have a conversation as a whole industry around outbound. And so I just kind of wrote a discussion paper on it and sent it around to a bunch of people. And suddenly a whole lot of people said, oh, wow, we should really do this. And then it just kind of started ticking along and, and became a thing. But all of that was just by putting an idea down and just sort of circulating it and sending it around to different people and not thinking that it was going to be a big thing until it grew into a big thing. I think people are sometimes a bit nervous about putting stuff on the internet, like to take it to a creator example. And I just don't think people need to, because if things are successful, they'll get seen and have, you know, a lot of visibility. But if things are unsuccessful, they don't fail spectacularly. People just don't see them or respond. You know, I've also tried forums like that. They haven't worked. You know, I had one, got 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 an okay response, did another one, was even more tepid. There just wasn't a demand, so we just stopped it, you know? And I think that that that's fine, you know? Like you gave it a go and it it, it didn't work. So I think that fear of failure is often a bit overrated because failures are not particularly interesting. They're just, we tried a thing, there wasn't much result, move on to the next one. Yeah. So you don't have to feel so scared of doing some of these projects. That's really the entrepreneur's mindset, isn't it? It's just like, I'm going to try this thing. Oh, it worked. Great. Like, Let's see if we can make it better. Oh, it doesn't really go anywhere. That thing's died. Let's move on to the next thing. It's this kind of process of iteration and learning and moving on to whatever is more interesting or different and just trying to keep going forward. I'm curious, what do you do to try to impart that mindset onto your students? Yeah, we do some projects around that. There are different steps that students get stuck on. So ideation is one. Like, I'm keen to do something, but I don't know what my idea is. So I've got some workshops we do about coming up with ideas. Uh, there's one fun one I do where we give them just a common item, so a cup or a rubber band or a pen, and, and they've got like three minutes to just come up with as many possible uses for it as, as possible. So, you know, you could use a cup as a hat or to catch a spider or to use as a vase. And like some exercises like that just get rid of the kind of cobwebs of like focusing on every idea that because the goal is just more is better then, you know, just gets them out rather than blocking and saying, oh, this won't work because. And then you can do the same exercise, but with a thing that they might actually want to do with their life. So for example, you know, activities that our student club could work on. 
And then you just say, before we critique any idea, just as many as possible. We could have a barbecue or a careers day or, a, you know, we could run a you know, study tour or we could run a formal workshop or we could run a party event or we could link with another club. And they just get down all their ideas and then you can critique it. The other one that I always ask is, cool, your vision is X. What is the smallest possible version of that? Like, What's the one they can kind of get started on? In the entrepreneurship world, your kind of minimum viable product. What's the what's the least you need to do to make this some form of real? And that does those things that Rob mentioned around momentum and, and just getting started. So ideation and shrinking the distance between idea to something real as much as possible. I like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I agree. A little left turn, just because I know it's a topic where we're all very passionate about, which is around sustainability and and international education this is obviously something that you've focused on with programs, with other work that you've done. What do you think international education really needs to think hard about right now in terms of sustainability? Yeah, look, it's always going to be a tough one in our sector because flights is just the you know one of the major ingredients of, of traveling abroad when you live in an island country, which we which we do. But I think being conscious about that, making it kind of worthwhile, I think that while you know emissions are emissions are emissions, I think that we as a society should think about the value of them. So use them when they're necessary and not when they're not. So you know, someone travelling to Pacific nations is, a, I think, a good thing in the sense that they can. You can't get that experience on Zoom. You just can't you, to to see it and experience it. You need to be there. So I think doing things like experiences when travel needs to happen that that's not a bad thing. But when it is a meeting, flying to these places to, to do a conference or a meeting is possibly not always the best idea. So, you know, kind of cutting things where we can. I'm a big advocate for overland travel. So, yes, you do need to likely get on a plane to leave the country. But after that, I like to book two flights. You know, when I'm going overseas, two flights. So I'm going to Europe for three months, one flight into London, one flight out of Berlin, the rest by train. Like that's kind of my, my way of doing it. And I've done quite a lot of trips in my life that have lived up to that. I once did a trip from Thailand to Turkey, and that was entirely overland. So through Southeast Asia, up through China, across Russia, down through Eastern Europe. And yeah, seven months, two flights. Brilliant. What else would you like to do overland? I would love to do the longest rail route in the world, which basically starts in Vietnam, kind of Singapore, and finishes in Spain. Portugal. So I'd love to kind of do the entirety of the of the Eurasian continent by rail one day. There's a few there's a few global conflicts that might need to clear up before that becomes more viable. Remember when I was doing my first backpacking trip when I was on my exchange program and discovering the Trans-Siberian Railway and looking at you know that that map which goes from Europe all the way across Russia to Vladivostok and having this moment of realization where I went oh, I could I could go and do that. Like there's, there's literally nothing to stop me from, and it was, it was going to cost nothing at the time. I think it was going to be like 500 bucks or something. It's probably a lot more now if you're even dare going into Russia. But just that moment where suddenly you realize that the world is open to you and you can, you can do whatever you, you want is lovely. I remember that exact moment, like that, that equivalent one. For me, it was looking at Europe, like that I was going to kind of be traveling independently for the first time. And coming from Australia, and I grew up in remote South Australia, the, the distance from my house to the nearest traffic light was 500 kilometers. And you just kind of think in that distance, but over Europe. And you're like, wait up, wait up. If I'm in Germany, I can go to France and I can go to Belgium. And, and you know, by Australia, the distances are tiny, absolutely minuscule. That, yeah, by the time you hit Europe. And that was kind of my thinking. Oh, and I could go here and I could go here and I could go here. Did you do the Trans-Siberian? I didn't run? do it in the end. 
Yeah, just ended up doing ended up doing other things. Oh, cycle touring, mate. Like I ended up cycle touring all over the place, and that was I was kind of running low low on money at the time, so cycle touring was essentially free, which made for a real and, and I, I just love the rhythm. I know you've done a fair bit of cycling too, but you know that rhythm where you're going fast enough that you get places, but you experience everything. You experience the rain and the sunshine and the the good smells, the bad smells, everything. So that was the magic for me. That's partly why I love overland travel. Airports are essentially teleportation machines, you know, like you don't see what you're passing. It's generic once you leave, it's generic once you arrive. I think arriving into a city, yeah, biking impressively so, but even by train or by ship, you know, it's just such a wonderful way to pull into a city and, and see it and experience it. If money were no impediment to you, what's the project you would start tomorrow? Ooh, I would, I would, I would, I would. I've certainly got some like video production projects that I'm both working on and, and would like to work on. I'd love to do a like travel documentary series with a with a bit of rigor and scope. You know, I've been telling interesting stories about about Melbourne, about design, but I think there's some kind of global versions of that that I'd love to do. Is there anything that you feel that that you'd want to impart to people that travel, that work in international education? Yeah, I'd encourage people to get out there themselves. It's very hard. Like it's very easy to. You know, not for a start, but also that, that there's a lot of diversity, that, that it's very different to travel to, to different countries and having a kind of really good baseline knowledge about what the experience is like. That's part of the reason we set up STAMP, to, for people to both experience the geographic regions that students are headed to. That if you've never traveled in Asia, sending students to Asia is like, you know, it's, it's, there's, there, there'll be things that you don't, don't understand. And, and that, you know, having the chance to experience that's really key and to do it in the same style that students do as well in some regards. And so, you know, if you can get along to stuff, I would encourage it. And I also think it makes you work better. So it shouldn't be a nice to do. It's not like you get to go on a trip, but rather it's kind of essential and core to, to, to understand some of the things. Now you don't have to go everywhere, of course, on every single program, but just having a baseline knowledge would probably help a lot. So yeah, definitely recommend kind of conferences and events that are in the places that your uni collabs in. Do you think that universities are going to change much in the next like five or ten years? Because that's a question I'm asking myself. We've, we've got a daughter that's 12 and given the changes that are happening with AI and I guess the changes that have had to happen through COVID because of people like students having to study remotely and so on. I'm just wondering where that's heading and how much universities will have to adapt. Yeah, look, I think unis should always be dynamic and changing, but at the same time, they are incredibly resilient organisations. Like, like I think what I think Oxford's entering its second millennium. Like they've been around for a thousand years. If I had to predict, do I think Oxford will be operating in another thousand years? I would say yes. Like I don't, I don't see the trends away from it. Like more people are going to university than ever before. Therefore, it's more essential. And in many parts of it, it like their their role of credentialing, like providing people with authority to say you are now an engineer you are now able to be a doctor i don't think it's going anywhere and i think now that information is more accessible you know you can produce you know things you can find things on the internet quickly you can use ai generative tools to to spit out answers that in one sense that'll be more critical that their kind of role will be around you know credibility as much as it is on content like that that bit is less important so like, I don't think they're going anywhere. I think, of course, they need to evolve and change as they always do and always should. And I think a really great part of that is hopefully what I'm trying to do with my courses, make them really engaging, make them really real world focus and let students kind of discover some of their interests and passions because, you know, knowing what to do is, I think, often just as important as knowing how to do it. What prediction would you have around Australian international education? Where do you think 
What, well, what will the industry look like in, let's say, 10 years' time? I think it'll be somewhat similar. I think that this is a world that sometimes moves fairly slowly. What will be the big changes? I wouldn't be surprised if there's some change in, in focus of both from individuals, like you know, new areas take on new you know, kind of interests. You know, Japan had, was, a, was the focus of a lot of Western societies as it kind of emerged really strongly, you know, through the, through the 1970s and, and 80s. China's obviously kind of an in, like a country that's very much on the, on the rise and finding its place in the world. I wouldn't be surprised if more in a similar vein, Indonesia gets more focus for similar things. One of the things I've always pushed back on a little bit is the idea that we should only care about countries when they have economic power. I've always, always, always thought that there's just so much to be gained from our friends and partners that will never be, you know, global, global powers. And that culturally, that's fine. And we've got a lot to learn. So I think that'll, that'll be you know, part of the part of the equation. Julian O'Shea is a lecturer at Monash University and an awesome guy involved in many, many things across many different areas. Julian, it's been awesome chatting with you on Global Horizons today. Thanks for your time, mate. Thank you very much. The Global Horizons podcast is brought to you by The Global Society, Australia's learning abroad support company. For about 10 years, The Global Society has been supporting Australian learning abroad teams with technology, training, consulting, strategy, marketing, you name it. We all know that learning abroad is time-consuming and complex, so if your team could use a little bit of extra support, reach out to the Global Society, globalsociety.com.au. Today's episode was recorded on Garigal land in Sydney, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Thank you. See you next time.